Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Nikki Mars-Wilden, Grey Eye's Associate Director, talks to artist Jess Tom about disability and change. This podcast contains strong language throughout. Welcome to this fantastic podcast. Uh, I'm Nikki Miles Wilden, I'm the Associate Director at Grey Eye. And I am joined by the wonderful Jess Tom. Biscuit, hi. Biscuit. Um, should we talk about what we look like? Yes, Keep Biscuit. Go on, you go first. Biscuit, um, I am a white woman in my late 30s. Fuck a goat. Biscuit. Um, I have Tourette's syndrome, which means I have a very wiggly body. Um, Biscuit, you'll be able to hear some of my vocal tics, Biscuit and Hedgehog. Biscuit. Um, And you might also be able to hear one of my motor tics, which is banging my chest. Fuck a goat. Um, Biscuit, I am a a wheelchair user and I love table tennis. I don't love table tennis. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Sausage. Yeah, I quite like table tennis. I wish I played it more. Biscuit, it's not really my game. Any game that involves any sort of bat or Mm. sharp implement or heavy object are really not my friends. I'm unlikely to be doing javelin. (laughs) I mean, there's quite a lot. Paralympics, come on. Biscuit, I'm often talking about wanting to, um, like, do a knife act when I yeah. probably would not survive for that long. <laughs> it would be a very not dramatic... with the audience, possibly. It would be a very dramatic <laughs> show. I've got very wiggly arms, um, Biscuit, which and poor impulse control. Um, that means that um, if there's something that you can hit on your head mm-hmm. or stab into your skin, <laughs> I will do yeah. that. Fuck, sausage. do that. Well, I am, what am I, four foot ten, a white woman... Uh, short blonde hair that my dye is coming out now, so you can see my roots. But, uh, I'm a I'm a wobbly walker. Wobbly walker. Uh, use a wheelchair as well. So yeah, that's I'm I'm uh, in my forties, even though I sound about twelve. Okay, Jess had ticks since she was a child, but, but wasn't diagnosed with Tourette's until she was in her twenties. Fuck a goat. With some encouragement from her friends, Jess decided to turn her ticks into a source of imaginative creativity, and the Tourette's Hero Project was born. Sausage biscuit. So tell us more about Tourette's Hero then. What biscuit. is that? Who is who is Tourette's Hero? Biscuit. So Tourette's Hero, Hero is a superhero persona, biscuit, and a creative, uh, multidisciplinary organisation. Fuck sausage. And I started Tourette's Hero in 2010 with my sort of long-term friend and creative collaborator Matthew Poutney Biscuit we'd worked together in inclusive play on adventure playgrounds for disabled and non-disabled children um, at that point for 10 years Um, and Biscuit my ticks had increased over that time and he had been very supportive of that as I adjusted but we'd also had some really um, significant conversations Biscuit one of which is like Tourette's Hero's origin story Biscuit which was we were basically sitting around his kitchen um, in South London and we'd have having a conversation about Tourette's and my tics Biscuit which we would have had lots of times before at that point Biscuit and I used to find it very hard to talk about that aspect of myself um, without tears but in this conversation he described Tourette's Biscuit as a crazy language generating machine mm-hmm. Biscuit and told me that not doing something creative with my tics was wasteful 
And for some reason, that, that the image of the machine biscuit and my ticks of this sort of spontaneous sort of creativity uh, engine biscuit um, and the idea, like I'd been raised to think that being wasteful was really bad. Somehow the, that sentence or that fragment of conversation like embedded itself in my thinking in a new way and was the start of me being able to allow myself to even give space to, to reps and to ticks and then see value in them biscuit and that really is the start of Tourette's Zero. Mm. Within a few months, uh, we co-founded Tourette's Zero in 2010. So we're almost 10. Wow. Biscuit. Um, yeah. And Biscuit. And it started off as a very small idea. And we just went with it. And it has um, grown. Uh, we put on creative events for children and young people. Um, Biscuit with and without ticks. I'm a strong believer in providing sort of creative positive opportunities for disabled children um, to be themselves exactly as they are and that those positive experiences and positive memories are protective when they face barriers. If you mm-hmm. have something to draw on and if you have some experience that it doesn't have to be this way, that yeah. the exclusion of disabled people is not the natural order, mm-hmm. um, then I feel like that's powerful. So creative events that are fun and playful are an important part of what we do. As is making artwork, biscuit, and often artwork that draws attention, biscuit, to the sort of invisible barriers um, to our cultural spaces, biscuit, you know, things like rules about um, how you behave or um, who has access to what sort of work, Um, biscuit, and advocacy and training, and basically speaking out about um, sort of some of the issues and policies and politics that impacts on disability culture, disabled people's lives. Biscuit. I also have a really great lycra onesie. Brilliant. Love it. <laughs> Sausage. Do you wear the lycra onesie quite a lot? <clears throat> I think Biscuit, at the beginning, Biscuit, actually, the costume and the mask in particular were really significant for me mm-hmm. because it meant that I was able to speak as Tourette's Hero and not as Jess Biscuit. And at that point, it was still very new for me to like identify really positively as a disabled person and understand um, and talk about my experiences. Mm -hmm. And so doing that behind a mask gave me a sense of freedom that I didn't have otherwise and confidence that I didn't have otherwise. It is that superhero thing anyway, isn't it? That you you wear, people wear that mask so they're not known, are they? They can go off and be this other other person. We're quite like, we were drawn to the idea of a superhero because of that sort of legacy, political legacy Mm -hmm. of masks. Um, Also because of the sort of playfulness and wanting to have something um, that was able to sort of transcend age and that would appeal to both children and young people and adults. I think we're really careful about walking that line when we talk about heroes and power. And there's an element where I wanted to reclaim that idea Mm. of what what powers, superpowers were or what, what, like, the sort of, the super crip idea so the idea that disabled people are all exceptional yeah. just because they're disabled is really <laughs> and inspirational is really damaging to disabled mm-hmm. to, to many disabled people and sets up really unrealistic expectations but playing that idea of finding strength in things that 
can be difficult. I mean, <laughs> um, I do a lot of uh, performance work at festivals with an amazing comedy songwriter with bipolar disorder called Captain Hot Knives. And he has a brilliant uh, rant he does around how he doesn't want superheroes whose powers make their lives easier. That's not, <laughs> yeah. that's not heroic. If you can fly <laughs> or be invisible, let's get it then. Just yeah. stop bragging about it. And exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, he wants, he wants, he wants superheroes whose, you know, powers mm. make them, uh, more layered, rich, mm-hmm. yeah, potentially flawed, but also relatable. Mm-hmm. Biscuit, fuck a goat. And, and I think that's like saying about um, as Tourette's hero. Fat biscuit. What's really stuck with me then is saying about you being a uh, like this word generator. Mm-hmm. And biscuit. I think that's that's the of taking that what you what you said you felt you could never talk about yeah to then that, turning that into that positive yeah, thing yeah biscuit and and biscuit and the real you know i had never been told i couldn't talk about it i grew up in a sort of family that was very accepting of my unusual behavior and sort of understood in the context of neurodiversity biscuit but i still internalized loads of those messages from the world around me we so do, that don't we? You, you know to say with people biscuit well. and yeah. so that and it's such an undoing that internalised ableism is such an active process and mm-hmm. takes decades for many people. I'm interested in how art can catalyse conversations and help, help that happen quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because I think that often we, we, we lose a lot of time and use a lot of energy, biscuit, trying to change ourselves yes. when actually... We have we can expect the world to adjust to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I had um, I had an experience a couple of years ago of quite an intense hate crime on a London bus, and biscuit. At that point, I had been doing lots of public speaking and had been talking a lot about the role that adjustment had played in my life and how transformative it was and how positive it was to transform your environment to meet your requirements, biscuit. And then I had this experience where this woman sort of shouted really very targeted and horrible abuse at me because I was a wheelchair user, actually, rather than because of my tics. So it was horrible. And then what was even more distressing for me, actually, was the sort of silence that followed. It was the fact that nobody really acknowledged that. But also I realised that my instinct was to minimise it, was to explain it away, was to try and ignore it. I didn't actually make any adjustments in that moment to change that situation. I didn't ask my support worker to go and tell the bus driver to stop or I didn't um you know get my phone out or, and it were you know there were reasons for that mm. but when I was thinking about it afterwards and biscuit particularly when I had an opportunity to speak at um a creative sort of conference called No Boundaries which I'd been invited to speak at beforehand and had a plan for what I was going to talk about it changed because of that experience and I think it changed because I realized biscuit that particularly as disabled people we're used to adjusting we constantly adjusting both our environments and, you know, to, mm-hmm. and to meet cha- our changing bodily requirements and our changing environments. Um, but I think that there then is a risk, Biscuit, that is very easy because we're so good at adjusting to adjust to inequality yeah. rather than to make the necessary adjustments to equalise opportunity, mm-hmm. Biscuit. So that was a good lesson for me about making the right adjustments. Mm. Biscuit for and not... Um, not just like understanding that adjusting isn't always positive. It can be really amazing and transformative, yeah, yeah. but it's important that we write the met. It's really easy to adjust to rubbish. Yeah. And in a at a time when disabled people are sort of 
under so much pressure, external pressure, because of sort of political policies mm-hmm. and the removal of services and um, the rhetoric around austerity, it's easy to feel like we have to adjust to that pressure rather yeah. than resist it. Yeah. So, yeah. And there are some days, Fa- as a disabled person, you just go, I don't know if I can do this today. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, even, of course. Sometimes, like, even leaving the house, it's like, okay... You know someone's going to look at you as soon as you leave the house using your wheelchair or whatever. And you're like, am I... Do I feel strong enough to to fight the fight? I don't mean that in a kind of our poor me kind of way. I just think it gets... You do have those days where it just feels really hard. Yeah, and it's relentless. Like, it doesn't... And I think often that, the relentlessness of it, and I think that's that's one of the issues with systemic oppression is that the... If you say the things that most bother me out loud, then they sound so petty, mm. they sound so small, but because they're happening many, many times a day, yeah. the, the accumulative effect is huge. Yeah. And so it's really... And, and I now recognise that as someone who has been, been able to... had the opportunity to engage with the politics and art and activism of disability. But it's so embedded that it's really easy... First of all, to not really not, not even realise that that's happening to you, and to feel then to take on that responsibility and feel like, oh, I'm bad tempered, or I'm grouchy, yeah. or yeah. I'm not patient enough, or to be like, oh, somehow, you know, I'm a disabled person, but also I have all these character flaws in terms of how I am impatient I am with the world, rather than see that actually that there is just this relentless wearing down yeah. on, on disabled, disabled lives. Yeah. What's been your history with Grey Eye? Has Grey Eye been any part of that journey of yours? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Biscuit, several years ago, Biscuit, um, after we started Tourette's Hero, Biscuit, um, but before we even touched performance in the theatre world or even mm-hmm. thought about that, like, I'm not a trained performer. I'm a play worker by profession, Biscuit, <laughs> which arguably does have quite a big yeah. element of performance in it. Definitely. If you could hold 60... 60 children um at circle time who don't have to be there then you know that 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 is is but I wouldn't have identified as a performer in any in any way but um I went to a show by um the comedian Mark Thomas and we'd done loads of prep beforehand at that point I hadn't been to the theatre lots um in sort of because of my tics and because Mm -hmm. of assumptions that that meant that I wouldn't be welcome in those spaces but I was really wanting to see the show and so was felt motivated to try and find a way um and so I talked to Mark beforehand and to the theatre and we made all of these plans and he introduced me to the audience at the start of the show but despite all that planning the one bit of thinking we hadn't done was what if what if someone complains and that because we hadn't done that thinking that meant that the front of house manager at the interval um asked me to move and sit in a sound booth at the side of the stage, which was a sort of segre- it was a show about segregation, and then I was <laughs> sat, behind, sat behind glass, um, and it was really upset me. And I sort of sobbed in that sound booth, and it was a really humiliating experience. And in that moment, I was like, I am never setting foot in another theatre again. Biscuit, I was like, this is not a space that I can occupy. It's too damaging for me. It's like not worth it. Never again. Um, I was actually supported to 
instead of keeping that promise, to understand that there were other ways that I could respond. And one of those was to make a show of my own, which was about my, called Backstage in Biscuitland, which was the first time I'd really made a stage show and been involved with theatre. Um, and I made it with Matthew, the co-founder of Tourette's and with Jess Mabel-Jones, who is an amazing performer, biscuit and puppeteer. Um, and we made Backstage in Biscuitland in a sort of community room in... Stockwell and the first person we ever showed it to who wasn't one of us three <laughs> Biscuit was Jenny Seeley mm-hmm. um, and her response support mentorship in that time was really crucial for me to feel like that was something that that we could do because mm-hmm. I hadn't seen loads of theatre so I didn't know what a show should look or feel mm-hmm. like. And I think that partly that was great because it meant that we made something that maybe in on our own terms yeah. rather than that was emulating anything else. And it was raw, it was authentic. Yeah. It didn't yeah. have all this it wasn't it, it wasn't made into something it wasn't Fat gonna biscuit. be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, biscuit. It was Yeah. yeah I don't know whether Jenny knows how significant sharing that with her and her response and her support in that moment was but I think that that's one of the things that I'm really keen to do as a disabled artist is support other artists mm-hmm. to, you know, to challenge themselves, to do things that are maybe feel slightly outside of their comfort, comfort zone. If I can use any of the skills or knowledge that I have gained to support other people to make work that they want to make or that mm-hmm. they think they might want to make, then I'm really up for that because that's what Jenny did it was that act of generosity with her time and her expertise Mm -hmm. that enabled us to make something that we could go to Edinburgh with for the first time and feel solid about um didn't wasn't part of it on the BBC Fat Biscuit yeah we then um the following year we then had this incredible opportunity to make a half hour version and biscuit for um, bbc4 as part of a night of live theater biscuit in the old television center building Mm -hmm. which was being turned into luxury flats so we were the last sort of creative thing to happen Mm -hmm. in that space and that broadcast to happen and we were in the old we used the old props store and it was such an amazing chance to think about how you take a piece of theatre and make it work for telly, but to also have live performance present. And for me, the ultimate, like, sort of moment of going full circle from, like, there was this incredible moment just before we went live where I was like, they are letting me, a woman, (laughs) a disabled, wheelchair-using woman with Tourette's biscuit go live on their channel whereas just a few years ago I was pulled from an audience and made to be separate and it just was like it's like it showed me what art can do and it art had helped me go on go on that journey myself and repair and heal and find a positive way Mm -hmm. to talk about that experience but it had also enabled me to claim space for other people and to promote the idea of relaxed performances which I feel like which are a big step in helping to get people to think about the diversity of bodies and minds that are part of our community. We're here to talk about disability and change Mm -hmm. and I think what are you saying there about relaxed performances? You are starting to make a big change in the industry with that. 
you've become kind of the spokesperson. Frustratingly slow. (laughs) Like every sense of changes regarding disability in theatre, film, TV, whatever, it is tremendously slow. I feel a bit impatient. I feel a bit impatient with that now. For ages, Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, you know, it's like change takes time. And then they banned straws in six months. And I was like, wow, if we can ban straws, which are an incredibly important access tool for many disabled people, with such speed Mm -hmm. and with such effectiveness, like it's the the landscape in how you can expect to drink as a disabled person in a public space has radically changed. Mm -hmm. And in in an invisible way to many people. If we can do that, let's get... Why have MenCap been had to campaign for changing place toilets for a decade? Exactly. Why are we having to? Why, you know, almost like eight or nine years after Biscuitland, why am I still look not able to see a broad range of work without having to do loads of extra labour? You know, I recently looked at the sort of statistics around the relaxed performances across mm-hmm. ten major London venues. Yeah. Uh, and it was, um, you know, it was 14 in the next year. So, like, a ridiculously small number. And if you take out the children's shows and the, and the pantos, there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I feel frustrated by that because it's about people accessing our shared culture and about who has the right and who is expected in those spaces. Um, I want to relax performances are... Uh, describe performances that take a relaxed approach to noise and movement coming from the audience they allow people to come and go um, as they need to often with a sort and they will acknowledge that at the start of the show so that freedom and that invitation is given to everyone they're not anarchy they're like a very simple relaxing of the rules and actually to do them properly it takes a small amount of thought, yeah. but not a lot of ma- not a lot no, of extra money no. or effort. And I've worked up at the Royal Exchange but, in Manchester for the last two years, and we do relaxed performances on every show that we have in the main house. And I have to be honest, they they don't take a lot of organisation. They're really on it. We have easy read synopses. Um, house lights stay on at a low level, and they're around fun. the module at the Royal Exchange. It's in the round. All of the doors are kept open. We might mm-hmm. have two shut for like entrance and exits of like big Flat. bits of um, set, yes. but everything else is kept open. Uh, people, you know, come and go, whatever, and it's explained at the beginning Biscuit. of the show. Actors introduce themselves as well, and just going in and watching Flat. those performances—they are some of the best performances the actors do as well. Because, because you have to concentrate, yeah. you have to focus in a different yeah. way, and you can't let you know drift off and think about your. You know, no, what you have what, for dinner. Yeah, 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 or, you know, or, you know, what, what your to do list for yeah. tomorrow looks like. Which, if you're doing a show often, like yeah, maintaining attention and maintaining focus mm. is an issue. I think one of the things, so relaxed performances, I think, are, send a really clear invitation to people that they've been thought about. And yeah. the, I think I, the reason that I like relaxed performance as a term rather than using any um, condition specific. Um, stuff like dementia friendly performances or autism friendly performances yeah. is that they they throw the invitation as wide as possible yeah we've, we have ba- you know mother babies and arms, arms yeah. and whatever and, and it's and it's great and it's a really and not just for the actors but it's it's a it's a good atmosphere in the yeah. theatre yeah my frustration is that that they can there can be an element of being like we've done our one relaxed performance for this run so we're not going to do any yeah. lots of theatres don't even have a consistent offer so they have no they will do a relaxed performance almost like when it occurs to them but that could not occur to them for months or years yeah um, this get 
I have been working with Battersea Art Centre to um, experiment with and develop a methodology for what a relaxed venue would look like. So what happens if rather than thinking about relaxed venues as the exception, as the sort of special shows, what happens if we flip that assumption and say that everything will take a relaxed approach, unless there is a clear creative or other rationale, why not? Um, and also understanding relaxed performance in its broadest terms. So for me, I think rather than being sort of paternalistic about, uh, you know, that show can be a relaxed performance, that show can't be, because there is some pe- there are some, if you, at its purest form, you can rule out a lot of shows. Um, for me, I want to see a broad range of work. I'm sensitive to noise, but that doesn't mean I don't want to see a loud show. I yeah. just need to know about it so I can prepare and make a decision. So for, for me, what I really encourage companies to do is to do what works for the show first, but to really think about your audience and what information they need to know and mm-hmm. communicate that clearly in accessible ways, mm-hmm. using pre-show information and synopses. Um, think about whether you can make small adjustments often to then make mean that every show is accessible in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, it frustrates me incredibly that we have a sort of creative sector that is always ready to experiment and excited by, um, by, by that sort of process and yet doesn't really seem to embrace access provisions as creative tools. They are opportunities to enrich your work. You are already using sound and light um, and bodies. They can be used to give freedoms and permissions and information in multi-sensory mm. ways. It can biscuit. make it more exciting. And I think, yeah, more the creative, there's more creative possibilities. Yes, yes. And, and that's what I think, Fuck. you know, and I, I think some of that comes from who... Who's creating the work at the moment? Yeah. People get very set that it has to be a certain way because that's how theatre has been for the last <laughs> hundreds of years. And you're like, I don't care. I don't care how many classics I see Fair. that have got X, Y, and Z in them. Fair. I'm interested in new stories and the new way of doing things yeah. to Biscuit. accommodate the society in which we live in. Biscuit. But Biscuit, but even like, you know, even when we think about like new writing is exciting and it's a real opportunity to diversify. Um, the voices yeah. um, and to make sure that people, particularly people who have been underrepresented within disability culture, uh, black and brown people and learning disabled people, often people at those intersections are less present yeah. within within our disability arts sector and that that is damaging and a risk for us all. Mm-hmm. Um, for, and there's some incredible artists making work and I really like, you know, the work of Matilda Abini and... Uh, Tarek, Lord Brownton, Brownton yeah. Abbey, like those things are exciting. Blink Dance Theatre are doing some incredible work um, as a disabled, uh, as a learning disabled, non-learning disabled mm-hmm. led company. So I feel really excited that some of that work, that that work is happening, but I feel frustrated with the pace of change within the mm-hmm. rest of the sector. Um, because it's not a niche issue. That's the thing. It's, <laughs> when are we ever trendy? One in five. We, do you know what I mean? We have peaks of going, oh, disability is trendy now. It'll be our focus. Then we get overtaken by something. It's like we're never consistently. Um, well, we're not. It's about. not a gimmick. It's not a no. trend. It is people's lives. It, it is. is people's lives. And I often get frustrated when, when you know, you have sort of. I've definitely had some sort of media type say to me, you know, oh, we're going to do this project and it was going to normalise disability. It's like, 
Disabled but, people are very like yeah. disability is very normal. Yeah, we're all right actually. But I think but I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is that at the moment the disabled narrative is not there. No, and it's, it's not it's there in its diversity. Yeah, there are there are you know you have tra- you have tragic narratives and you have inspirational narratives yeah, and then you have the evil villains and there's very there's little in between. In between about anything. And it's just not that. Yeah. It does not do anyone. It does not serve anyone to mm-hmm. reduce any group of people to a stereotype yeah. and to not show the sort of layered richness of our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the fact that, you know, being a disabled person is not about what our bodies do. It's about that lived experience of barriers and that relentless experience of barriers. And the opportunity to give and receive solidarity is one of the things that makes me feel hopeful mm-hmm. um, at a time where there's lots of reasons to feel, you know... Yeah. The other way. The other way. Um, but I, I think, you know, there's so much fear around disabled bodies and minds. Um, and that some of that fear is our internal fear. It's really easy, like it's understandable, totally understandable, that if you face barriers, it feels frightening to, put, to, to make yourself exposed. Um, but there is also a fear of disabled people because it's not visible because the diversity of those narratives is not present and because often stories around disability are not written by disabled people and it's like it's not good enough just to have difference visible on stage that's even nowhere close it's got to happen at every layer and we have to have we have to be supporting disabled people as writers and directors and producers and programmers and Mm -hmm. i am desperate to get one of us in a like running a major building also just picking up on about relaxed performances so seeing the change throughout and on stage as well how what is it about sort of audience protocol because there's been lots in the news at the moment about people going i i think you know so and so they've cheapened tickets they've made the bar cheap that's attracting the wrong people i wish people would stop stop rustling their sweet wrappers or fat biscuit there isn't it, for a art form, Biscuit, that is so about liveness and about humanity and about presenting stories, it confuses me that we expect audiences not to have bodies, <laughs> <laughs> not to need a wee, yeah. not to need sugar levels to be at a good point, not to need to cough and sigh and wiggle because they are bodies in a space to deny like to deny that is a very privileged position uh, and i think that fear around like if you know my exp- like my experience might be damaged if i sit and sit next to someone with down syndrome and it's like it probably won't it might be different but to always to understand that this is the right way and anyone coming into this space has to do it our way that doesn't work because that's just about dominant power. And it hasn't been that way for very long. Mm. It's like just because you've claimed that for the last hundred years that we've I sat mean, in silence. Yeah. You know. Because you look at it before, like Shakespeare's time, people were going through tomatoes and like, exactly. And I think one of the th- so at Edinburgh one year, I went to see a comedian and I hadn't, I'd, they'd known that I was coming beforehand, but um, maybe not with not enough time. And I hadn't done that introduction personally. Not what I necessarily should have to. Mm. But what was interesting is that they then were quite thrown by my presence and sort of talked to me for about 15 minutes and asked a lot of questions that were, um, like, 
difficult for me and a bit invasive and unnecessary and but one of the things they said that really stuck with me was that oh you know this as a comedian you prepare for hecklers and you prepare for drunk people and you prepare for hindus but you you know i've never prepared for someone with tourettes and it's like why not mm. um and because it, it's not just about tourettes as a specific condition why do we go to the theater and expect not to be sitting next to a learning disabled person or someone with dementia or a neurological condition. Why are we expecting those people not to be present in that space? That is the issue. And one of the things that I say to, to artists a lot who are worried and fearful about relaxed performance or like what that might mean for their work is that you get to be in creative control. You get to control the work you make, but you don't get to say who gets to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and relaxed performance is just one way of ensuring that a broad range of people get to see it. The same, you know, the same as captioning and audio description. And like having access is about audience development, but it is also about meeting basic responsibilities to not be discriminatory in mm. your practice. So for companies who aren't considering the diversity of bodies and minds, not only is there a sort of creative risk and a social and ethical risk and a business and financial risk, it, that, it, there, is a, there is a legal risk. It's all like, just because, you know, the, the legislation doesn't have, you know, quite have the teeth that it needs to have, and that we shouldn't, you know, I'm, you know, we shouldn't be threatening people into, you know, we're going to sue you if you don't, you know, do it. Do yeah, it. Yeah. But there is a point where it's like, this is not an extra piece of work that we're asking you to do. This is your existing work. You're mm-hmm. just not doing it well enough. Yeah. Or lots of people. There are obviously companies that are doing it brilliantly and whose work is really exciting and really yeah. um, pushing the boundaries about what access can look like. Mm. Um, as we but, touched on it earlier about plastic so, straws. Yeah. There's a big change here. <laughs> plastic straws being banned. I was actually talking about it quite a lot on the on the journey here. I think that in the beginning, I was when they when it became clear that sort of the campaign to to ban plastic straws has was gaining momentum, which happened very quickly. Initially, I felt frustrated that disabled people were being overlooked. It was like this is an example of us not being considered, and because because the majority of people don't depend on them in day-to-day, it's been assumed that they are a frivolous luxury and therefore we can ban them without any issue. Once numerous disabled people spoke up, sharing their experiences, explaining the nuances of that, educating in a way that we shouldn't necessarily have to, but being really generous with time and energy and lived perspective, and that's been happening solidly, and there are the sort of brilliant tables that show like why lots of the alternatives don't work. Biscuit, I mean, give me a metal or a glass straw, and you're getting pretty close to the knife act we talked about <laughs> yes. at the start. <laughs> um, and, and then, so this far down the line, having that, you know, and obviously in the UK, there has been the exception, the sort of medical exception. But it does medicalise an aspect of my life that wasn't medicalised yeah, before. Yeah. It does mean that really to reliably drink away from home, I have to carry my own straws with me in a way that I didn't have to before. I am choosing to buy biodegradable straws, but they have quadrupled in price in the last year. And that most upsettingly, I am frequently shamed for using a straw. Really? If I've asked for straws and been told off 
and because of, and and you know it's illegal for me to give you a straw it's not yes, actually yes. it's a reasonable <laughs> adjustment to give yeah. me a straw um but i think that many places have just because of the ban have just got rid of them without then thinking we should we keep should some. have some um, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and i think that that's the most upset like you know learning that a disabled woman had died from an injury caused by metal straw was really distressing because the 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 shaming mm-hmm. and the judgment is what is forcing disabled people to try things that they know probably aren't yeah. safe for them and i am i get frustrated when it, and more angry when it feels like it moves beyond mm-hmm. um a lack of thought and an oversight mm. to being a deliberate point. And I also, Biscuit, I just don't, I just don't think that that's the solution. It feels like that is a, that is a very, you know, it's frustrating to go into a restaurant and see lines of plastic cutlery yeah. and then paper straws. It's like, really, guys? And I think my frustration is that people, that the disabled people were listened to, and it's like, and, you know, learning about that death was just like, I felt so upset that it's like, this is exactly what we are saying is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But we're not allowed to be experts on our voice. own, yeah. on our own experience. And this getting, for example, like the number of people who will, if you talk about that issue, will just come back to you with all the alternatives. It's like, I have given this some thought. Mm-hmm. Biscuit. Like I've not been completely ignorant to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like I'm. It's I've like I'm. Trying, I, yeah. It's like I've. I've tried things and I've worked out actually what I need. I'm saying that, and by choosing not to respond to that or choosing to overlook that, that is adding another layer yeah. of challenge to my day. And it's about hydration. It's about water. Mm-hmm. It's not a trivial issue no. to disabled people, like being on a plane and needing a drink and not. Yeah, having not you know, not realizing that you've run out of straws is like, oh mm-hmm. gosh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not about making your cocktail look pretty. No, no. And the, about- and, the, and the answer to that is about everyone else saying no, rather than disabled people doing extra labour. So that was the that was the option. The option was that as a society we take responsibility and we make it illegal to mandate to give to put straws in drinks mm-hmm. as a as a mandatory that like just without yeah. thinking and make it something that you request or make it something that it's just what like disabled people are doing the work yeah again and <laughs> um, fuck and so another change because this podcast has been about change 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 one final thing is that the your lamppost yeah it's all been changed fuck. there <laughs> it's big the change from your yeah. window. the new lamppost is a terrible gives off a terrible <laughs> light <laughs> And he's like he's like a little right angle. He's barely he's got no substance to his body. So Shame. <laughs> um I'm not body shaming lamp. I mean I am clearly body shaming <laughs> lampposts. Um the lamppost, so I moved into my the, my current flat um uh about eight years ago um, and that was because I where I had been living before, which I thought of as my home, was no longer accessible to me. It's up six mm-hmm. flights of stairs. Was gay. It was very precarious, and so I moved, and I was quite reluctant to move. But one of the things that happened very quickly was that biscuit. You know, my bedtime routine would be like put on my pajamas, brush my teeth, biscuit, get into bed, go to the lamppost about <laughs> how bright the moon was, or 
how cold it was. So shouting at the lamppost, just get my ticks involuntarily chatting to the lamppost, has been a feature of my life ever since. And one of the things that I think I've come to really value about Tourette's is the fact that my ticks draw attention, draw my attention to the details, just get in the world around that I would otherwise miss. And those sort of strange, totally random relationships that I develop with things like pieces of street furniture um, are some of the joys of mm. living with a brain that works slightly uh, unusually um biscuit but when so recently i had written a post but two years ago about my fear of what would happen if the lamppost mm-hmm. got taken down and like i was thinking how oh, does it need to be listed like i would organize a crowdfunding campaign it's like I'm, and then i was like don't worry in my mind it's like, don't worry about it local authorities have no money they're not gonna they're not gonna touch that lamppost we went for lunch the other day and came back and the lamppost had been decapitated and they were replacing it with a new, you know, energy efficient, I'm sure, um, mm-hmm. lamppost. Um, and, but this was one of the, so one of the places where my uh, colleague Will, who was with me at the time, basically said, asked them if I could have it. And I just sort of sat still and looked disabled and they, <laughs> they um, they let me keep the lamppost, which is probably oh, quite an unusual request. Yeah. So I'm, Biscuit, I would like to, um, so I like feel he's come in from being outside of my home and is now present in my home. So. Um, and how is that going, sharing your space with the lamppost? It's, go, it's going all right. I'm keen to get him working again as a lamppost. Yeah. And I've had lots of brilliant generous offers to help me um get him up and running so yeah. I'm quite keen to have him as a we've got we've even written we have a short relay play called light of my life which is about the lamppost so I would really have ambitions for him being able to you know to tour to be part of that <laughs> yeah, yeah. and has he forgiven you for the goading yeah seems to be he's pretty resilient yeah. <laughs> fantastic um, and I have totally gendered him yeah oh, yeah <laughs> Love it. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely do that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And um, so what have you got coming up next? Fat biscuit. Um, biscuit. So we, we, our most recent piece of work is a neurodiverse biscuit presentation of a sort of classic uh, canon, piece of canon theatre that is uh, Samuel Beckett's short play, Not I, which is um, one of the reasons that I was really drawn to Not I was because it is a very intense piece of theatre and a very established piece of theatre um, and when we were touring Biscuitland lots of places said to us oh we're really interested in relaxed performance we just mm-hmm. haven't had the right type of show yet and I got really interested in that cultural curation Biscuit which was happening around disabled people's yeah. access to work and so I was like all right we're going to take the most uh, intense piece of theatre and make it accessible on every level to audience and performer but also what's interesting about that play is sort of particularly reading it was being like, this is a disabled character. This, we don't, it's great to have new writing, but also disabled characters already exist. They're, mm-hmm. not, they're just not being recognised as such and played by disabled people who can give them the authenticity that they need. That they need. Yeah. So I feel very proud to um, 
be in a position to take on that role um, as a neurodiverse performer playing a neurodiverse character, the role of mouth. Um, and we'll be touring that show um, a little bit in the UK and internationally, hopefully, at the start of next year. So that's that's a big thing. We're yeah. also working on a piece of um, work, more of an installation than a piece of theatre, around the concept of the language-generating machine and what that might look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly using that as a way of exploring non-intentional language but also exploring the power and potential of words to bring us together and pull us apart um and for that piece also i'm really interested in combining my sort of expertise and knowledge as an inclusive play worker um with my practice as a visual artist which is what my training is in and with our sort of interest in performance and live work because i think that those things together play and performance and making Mm -hmm. feel like they fit yeah so tightly together Mm -hmm. but you often don't see them brought together and I'm um, and I'm particularly interested in making work for children and young people that also works for adults uh, but and that maybe tackles like weighty themes but in accessible playful joyful ways well thank you very much Jess for joining me here at Grey today Uh, thank you for having Um, me and good luck with all your projects amazing thank you for inviting me to be part of what is such a wicked podcast and here's to disability and change here's to disability and change (laughs) sausage dog Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.